More than the clothes we wear, style is about the way we move through the world. On this episode of Beyond Style Matters, I talked to Juno Award-winning singer-songwriter Molly Johnson. I watched the snow come falling down And cover every inch of town And all the footprints we have made Disappear without a trace the privilege of watching Toronto-born Molly Johnson steady ascent to stardom since I started co-hosting the new music back in 1979, the same year she formed a funk rock band called Alta Moda, illuminating the Queen Street West scene with her gorgeous sense of style and sexy, smooth delivery. By the early 90s, Molly had graduated to an edgier kind of collab, fronting The Infidels, a band she describes as Black Crows Meet Aerosmith, that won a Juno Award for Most Promising Group in 1992. Molly then started a love affair with jazz, took a little time out to have a couple of kids, and by 2000 released a debut jazz album. Her second jazz album, three years later, made her a bona fide star in France, and she's been on a roll ever since. Molly's major philanthropic work, coupled with her inimitable sultry vocals and sensational personal style, have earned her iconic status on the Canadian cultural landscape. And judging from her new holiday album called It's a Snow Globe World and her peaceful new country lifestyle in Northumberland County, Molly Johnson is settling into a joyful creative groove that's all about promise and positivity. Molly Johnson, such a pleasure uh, reconnecting with you as uh, we did recently in that beautiful town of Port Hope, Northumberland County. And, you know, interesting because I started thinking back to how I first met you and when I first knew you back in the Queen Street West days in the 80s, I guess it was. Absolutely it was. Wow. Are you often nostalgic about those that looks back fondly at the past? Are you always about it's happening now, it's happening tomorrow, don't think back. You know, probably a heady mixture of both. I do love all that came before this, I do. You know, living at the Cameron Public House on Queen Street for 10 years, I lived there, and just the most fantastic years of my life as an artist. Um, I just was there a couple of weeks ago, and the kids of the original owners of the Cameron Public House are running the Cameron Public House in a really fantastic way. And we had wonderful times. The 80s was a crazy time. There was a lot of money around. People were buying art. Things were being started. Artists, collectives, magazines. I, I do look back with fondness and happiness, but I certainly do spend a lot of time looking forward. Obviously, your uh, career has certainly gone great guns uh, since those days. And it it was an interesting journey for you, really exploring different facets of yourself and your musicality and going from, you know, those early bands that you played in, like uh, the Infidels, you know, and, and even, you know, stylistically, how you, how you changed, how you grew. When you think back to uh, the way you saw yourself in those days, what would you say uh, the biggest change has been? 
I, I got to tell you, I'm still wearing Doc Martens. Uh, <laughs> They're very happening right now. Perfect. They've, they've always been happening for me. Um, <laughs> you know, I had a white mohawk in those days for a minute. So my hair was bleached white, about two feet up, held together by soap. You used hand soap <laughs> or sunlight soap. That's what the punks used to keep those mohawks up. The great hairdresser of the 80s, Diva, she actually braided rope into my hair. So I had these long white braids and this white mohawk, which strangely looking at my sound today, it's not so different. Yeah. You took time out, sort of-ish. I mean, not that you know your passion ever um, sort of eroded for music, but when you decided to have kids, I mean, I mean, that was like kind of the same with me. Like I had this career happening, you know, it was the eighties, almost approaching the end of the eighties for me. And, you know, I, I felt pretty empowered. I thought I'm Wonder Woman, I'm going to do it all. And I popped out these two kids without ever really taking much time off work. And, but for you, I mean, you consciously decided you wanted, and you had two beautiful boys. Um, what happened uh to your creativity uh, along the way? Did it uh, inspire you more to have these kids or? No, no, it certainly did not inspire me more. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. I, no, no, no. I think part of the secret sauce of that was that I was already established. I wasn't Jan Arden or anything, but you know, I had a bit of a lane. I had a stuff going on in France so I could step out easier being an older mom, but it was exhausting. I was an old tired mom because, oh yeah, I was old. So you're more tired, but you're smarter than if I'd had the babies 15 mm. years earlier or whatever. I was smarter and had my priorities straight and had been to a million parties. So the nights when you're sitting at home, not going to a party because you have, oh, I don't know, small children. It was kind of okay because I'd already kind of been to that party. And that party would be there when I felt like coming back to it. And by the way, I'm kind of a homebody. I kind of really like being at home. I always have. It's always hard to get me out on the road. It's always hard to get me to commit to a tour. I, I don't live to perform. You know, I have, a, a, a like I may have mentioned, a, a superb trio of musicians that make it super fun, just the three of them. And if I can't get them, I don't really do the show because then it's not fun. But I don't live to perform. I, I perform to get me back in the room to write more songs. I think, it, it, you know, it's surprising maybe for some people um, to hear this about you, this homebody side of you, because you are a very glamorous person. Yes. I am such a glamorous person because I have very glamorous friends who find it charming that I show up in dirty jeans and sneakers and I, I let them do whatever it is they're going to do to bring me to the point where they're happy with it. And of course, for the most part, are gay men. So, you know, the bar is extremely high, extremely high. I've always understood the importance of costume, much like a guitar player's amp or a piano player's piano. It's part of my rig. It's part of my work life. And there's all kinds of rules around what, I, what I'm presenting. And um, when I work with stylists, uh, in particular, someone like Nicholas Malemfi, who's worked with me for 20 years. I will literally say to Nicholas, this is the kind of record I'm making. These are the kinds of songs I'm writing. I want to look, I want uber hippie chic. Hippie chic, hippie, hippie chic. Um, because these are protest songs. These are 
powerful songs. Um, I covered Marvin Gaye on that record with Inner City Blues. I wrote a song called Protest Song. We're very much in the, the throes of Black Lives Matter and I wanted something powerful. I also let my hair, my roots grow out on that album. And if you look at the album jacket, there's a good two and a half inches of white hair there. It looks like a reverse ombre kind of a situation, but what it really is, is I don't feel like coloring my hair anymore. I'm kind of done. Mm -hmm. You know, really working with the stylists or people I'm working with, they certainly don't, I certainly never put on anything I don't love. Um, And there's certainly lots of conversation around what the next project is, what it should look like. This new Christmas record or holiday record that's just out now. I mean, I thought about snow globes and people in bubbles and isolation and snow globes and shot the album jacket probably four months before I actually wrote the song that had the word snow globe. It's a snow globe world. This is all process creating that end result. And and, I, and it takes a team of people with me. There's no question that you're, I, I say there's no question in my mind, that your background in the theater has probably, you know, colored that lens in which you see the world. And that so, what some people may not know about you, uh, you started as a child performer, um, working with the Mervish, uh, Ed Mervish, and, you know, his great theatrical musical I productions. Did. And you were... That's right. That's exactly right. At the time, extremely edgy and avant-garde plays. Like he brought Porgy and Bess. He brought Finian's Rainbow, which is about a white mare that wakes up black one day. I'm telling you, and a crazy leprechaun. Like he brought really uh, important things to Toronto that would never have come. As far as me as a performer, no. I was a very adorable child. And I literally had to be (laughs) someone on the wing would say, Molly, go now. And I'd walk to some pink X on the stage and stand there and just be adorable. I was, you know, a couple up from a potted plant. So, you know, it's part of the set. My brother Clark, on the other hand, older, sang, uh, had leads in singing, my sister as well. Um, But I loved it. And Ed Mervish stated my life right up until he died. His whole family, David, is unbelievable to me. I adore that guy. I talk about loving your father's legacy. You know, what Ed taught me, little things I remember, uh, always throw it to the back row because those are the cheap seats and those are the people that really love you. But what he did also was he paid for my ballet shoes because what really gave me focus and really toughened me up to the world of music was my time at the National Ballet, where I really learned how to focus, how to take rejection, how to understand what that means, how to push through on things. That was very much an amazing experience I had. And I was such a lucky kid to get that time at the National Ballet School. Yeah, to re- the discipline of a dancer and especially a ballet dancer, unparalleled, really incredible. Your parents too, um, a mixed race couple who came yeah. up from the States, like in the 60s. Earlier than that, they were they came up here in the late 50s, wow. like 56 or so. Yeah, white mom, black dad, America, not a great place for them to be. I'm the little Canadian. I got to be born here. What did you learn from your parents and the way they soldiered on um, that really has helped you in your, uh, in your career, in your longevity as an artist? I think I heard a lot of uh, truth being spoken at home about how things actually really were, not what was presented 
at school or with your friends, but the, a worldview of what's really going on. So I heard a lot of truth. I heard a lot from grown-ups, not just my parents, but their friends and people that they dragged home. The, the stories of perseverance and tenacity and uh, civil rights. Civil rights is a huge umbrella, but when you think about it, at the end of the day, what, what everybody deserves globally is civil mm -hmm. rights. Those basic, basic, basic things that we in North America, of course, take completely for granted. Mm -hmm. uh, not all of us, of course, mm -hmm. not all of us. Uh, some of us do not have running water, uh, clean water. I mean, not all of us, but I think we live in a very interesting mm -hmm. time. I think I lived in a very interesting time with my parents in the 60s, uh, growing up in the 60s with them for sure. But I think that they gave that, that generation, gave this generation something to stand on. And uh, Black Lives Matter lives on the shoulders of that generation of people that fought so hard to push the ball as far up the mountain as they did, the rock. You had a black man in the White House, that's not nothing. They didn't let him do anything and they kept him pretty locked down. But he was there mm. and his family was there. And, you know, we, we've made some moves. Every great conversation needs a pause. So this is the perfect time to talk to you about our sponsor, TSC, who, without their support, this podcast wouldn't be possible. Now, as you might know, I've covered the catwalks of Paris, Milan, New York, and London. So why have I partnered with a retailer like TSC, today's shopping choice? Well, I believe the great fashion should be accessible to everyone. And TSC.ca is home to some wonderful Canadian brands and designers like Kim Newport Mimran, Brian Bailey, Kayla Kay, Ron White, and Hilary McMillan. And of course, TSC offers so much more than mere fashion. Discover quality Canadian jewellery and accessories from Bico, Brass and & Unity, and I. You can find more Canadian designers and brands in the CAFA store at tse.ca slash CAFA. Let's all shop better together. What do you think made you really want to follow a life in the arts as your sister Tabby did, as your sister, as your brother Clark has? I mean, you, you have another brother that isn't in the arts. Yeah, we have the smart Johnson, yeah. as we like to call him. When he's not in showbiz. Three um, out of four. Three out of four of us. Yeah. For me, anyhow, I can't speak for them. But I, I, I think when you're introduced to the world of art uh, in many different disciplines and you, as a small child, are privileged enough to see many different types of expression. Uh, the lady that used to look after me when my mother went back to school was a portrait painter. And I used to sit in Mervis Village in her studio while she worked. And so I grew up with a very early on the smell of paint. Your father gave you a great appreciation of uh, the outdoors in a sense, I think, because he- He did. He was very physical. Yeah. He was a phys ed instructor. He was a football playing. I can learn and then coach any sport. When he met my mother in Switzerland, he was actually a ski instructor after the Second World War. And he had taught himself how to ski and was giving ski lessons to pay for university. Oh, my mother didn't stand a chance. He looked like Harry Belafonte in skis <laughs> in, in Switzerland on the slopes. Come on, wow. come on. Uh. Come on. What a picture you so paint. He, oh, yes. So, but he really is so instrumental in, well, the ability to have a band 
for 30 years. This is coaching. He was a coach and he taught me how to build a team and what you do to get the best players and how you keep the best players and how you keep the best players engaged. Give them lots of room. You know, there's no micromanaging here. Mm. And I've taken that into so much of even the festivals that I put together, music festivals I put together. I, I put together a great team and then really I step out of the room. You gotta be able to step out of the room. If the stuff doesn't fall apart, you built yourself a great thing. Like on stage, I have my musicians do instrumentals that they wrote without me there. I always have a stool on stage and the crew in every, not my crew, but the crew that comes with every venue always asks, why does she need a stool? Is it because she's got uncomfortable shoes? And my crew says, no, uh, Molly likes to sit and listen to the band. Oh, and that's oh, true. That's I sit and listen to the band. I do have a shoe rule. I have a 40-minute shoe. I have a 90-minute shoe. I have a, you know what I mean? Like, I, And again, it's all part of the costume. Uh, I need something that I can stand in for 90 minutes and not topple over. Don't trip over the mic cords. That's happened. Don't trip over the... You know, like really, does this dress roll up? Can I get this in a suitcase? I've got a bass player backstage who might be available to zip me up. There are no stylists back there. <laughs> and so the stuff's got to work simply, easily, and speak volumes for yeah. me. The right clothes on stage can tell a huge story, and I don't have to open my mouth. And I'm well aware of the power of that and the manipulation of that. It is showbiz. Yeah. It's a, it's wonderful that you managed to have that amount of trust in the people that surround you. But I obviously, like you say, you trust is critical them. to it. Trust is critical. Again, as a kid backstage or backstage on a television set or or a theater or, a, you know, you see upfront and personal what that crew does. So it's not just my musicians. It's my sound and light guy, my, like, we're, we're all in this. Like, I'm only as good as they are, essentially. What is the season? Because you wrote a holiday record specifically. I mean, a very gorgeous, gorgeous Christmassy, although I don't mean Christmassy with a capital C, because it's, it's not so much about Christmas, but it's about the season. As holiday. I really wanted to, I have an amazing record company president, Jeffrey Remedios. He's just oh, genius, that. brilliant, young, really smart. He's the best guy, yeah. Extremely respectful. At one point said I was a legacy artist. I went, ooh, what does that mean? That was right when I was letting my hair grow in. And he literally said to me, I think it's because you've outlived all the assholes. <laughs> and I went, yes, yes, I have. Yes, I actually have. That is true. So right away, Fast Friends. He, a few years ago, asked me why I'd never made a Christmas record. And I said, because they're usually really, they really suck usually. They're just not very good. And we agreed that maybe I wouldn't write one that sucked. But I had to go away and think about it for a year. <laughs> and then don't you know, COVID hits. And it became a, a COVID holiday record, which is where the notion for me of a snow globe, because we live in a bubble, because we're all isolated without yelling it at the top of the... I shot the album jacket in Northumberland County at a friend's farm I, last winter. So I shot the artwork before I wrote the song. That makes sense because I guess it really crystallized your vision in such a concrete way that... That's right, that's right. And really being such a uber Canadian as I am and so loving 
so much about Canada and really loving the cultural fabric of our country. And as a little brown-skinned girl growing up in North Toronto, I actually saw the city change color. Like I actually went from the only brown-skinned family in our whole school to everybody kind of looking like me. So I actually saw that happen and loved it happening. And, and again, writing for people, for the people, not me, not everybody believes in baby Jesus. Not even black baby Jesus. So, but what we all believe in as a society is happiness and joy and light and family. These were the touchstones to making this record. Um, I went out of my way not to record Jingle Bells. Like I went out of my way. And Winter Wonderland, which is a classic winter song, I mean, we, we took the approach of, uh, well, I'm going to date myself, Fred Flintstone, Barney Rubble's kid, Bam Bam, like the boom, bop, boom, bop, boom, bop, like crazy big tom drums on that thing. Sleigh bells ring, like really aggressive. <laughs> so much fun. And I got the, I got to, you know, what I love to do is write with the guys in my band. So, you know, pretty much all of them have copyright, have skin in the game, baby. They got skin in the game, which also makes for a great show. We love each other and you just totally radiates yeah. wherever we go. What's the most fun for you? Is it that collaborative period where you're all huddled together, making it up? Or is it when you've got the goods and you're on stage and you're- Oh no, definitely the collaborative, definitely the collaborative stuff. The stage stuff is great because they are, quite frankly, the best jazz trio in Canada. There's just no doubting the alchemy of Davide Dorenzo on drums, who's also Tom Cochran's drummer. But man, can these guys play? I, I can't wait to see you. I know you're, you're doing a series of uh, holiday we concerts uh, throughout so exciting. the month of December. You know, your life obviously is uh, very multifaceted. And I know that whole job, if you want to call it that, uh, and joy mm -hmm. of being a mother to uh, adult boys, uh, like my me and my adult girls. I mean, such an integral part of, of your life and your yeah. psyche and what you're involved with. But, you know, you, you've managed to strike such a great balance and even a lifestyle balance with, you know, going to your studio in Kensington Market in Toronto and going back to your home in Northumberland County. What would you say to someone who looks at you and, you know, and sees you as such an amazing role model, really? And, and you know, to say nothing of all the philanthropic work that you are so well known for. I mean, your, your community outreach has always been so sublime. It looks like you got the whole, you know, puzzle intact. I mean, you found all the pieces. Well, I don't think any of us really find all the pieces. And that really provocative lawyer, Maria Hennen, who said, who said we had to have it all? Whose idea was it that we have to have it all, right? Only women put that on women. Men don't do that. They don't have to have it all. Well, because most of the part, they got a woman who's, you know, doing the backfill on that. Anyhow, I said no a lot. I, ha I said no a lot when my kids were little. I just did not go on tour. Like literally I would, I would drag, and, and my trio all had kids too. So we would leave for France on that seven o'clock Thursday night flight, arrive in Paris in the morning. I would do press all day, a show on Friday, wake up Saturday morning, get on a train, go somewhere else in France, play that venue Saturday night, 
and Sunday morning, get back to Toronto. And I was back in Toronto Monday morning, literally packing lunches and, you know, doing the weekly thing that one does. And I did that for 10 crazy ass years. There were times when we would be in Japan and we it would take us longer to get to Japan than, than the the actual time we spent there. And it was just a way of keeping my foot in the door. And so doing the bare minimum of that sort of stuff. And for the most part, I was June Cleaver. I was at home, I was making cookies. I never had a mother like that. My mother had no, my mother barely knew how to cook. She was like, I got way bigger fish to fry than be around here cooking for you people. John, my father did all the cooking. She had no time. So what I, what I noted when I had not one, but two boys, I really did think, oh, I gotta raise some gentlemen. I gotta raise some feminists. I gotta raise, like there's enough bad behavior from quite frankly men. I'm not a man hater, so my best friends are boys. So I don't know if you can have it all. I think you have to make sacrifices. I, I think you have to make priorities. I think you have to lose sometimes. I don't think you're gonna win all the time. I don't expect, certainly I don't expect to win all the time. I don't think you need to win all the time. In fact, losing teaches you how to bounce back. And that was another rule of my dad, the gym teacher, who would say, it's all in the bounce back. It's not in the mess. It's how you bump out of the mess. Where are you going from there? I think we as, as women need to be a little bit easier on ourselves and um, demand equal pay. That's the big one. I think that would change so many things if women were just paid the same as men in the workforce to do the same job. That would equalize. So much bad behavior happens because somebody's got more power than somebody else and allows them to have bad behavior. So possibly in my naive way, my thinking that pay equity equalizing that takes the balance of power out puts everyone on an equal footing and away we go mm, yeah so oh so it all comes down to the cold hard cash so much of it does and, and you know as an artist i didn't think about that until it was almost too late <laughs> right because you love the work so much it's like i always felt that's right i, I would pay someone to let me do my job because i just wanted to do right. it finally you're the fact that you were so adamant about staying here in canada and i know you've said you're a proud canadian molly but uh you know that yeah. so heartening to me because I sure as heck love this country too and had opportunities to go and I insisted on digging my heels in and trying to have an international career from this country, which you and which you did. It's a gift to be able to do that. Why uh, were you so adamant about not going off to France or the States or, you know, so you could have so easily? I really understood why my parents left the United States of America and it never changed for me. Uh, just the inequities, just there's so, so many things wrong about that place. I lived in Florida for a couple of years. I was a student down there. Lived in Key West for a little while. Spent some time in New York for sure. But this is the place to raise children and this is the place to have a real life. And as much as we complain, 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 and we're certainly not perfect, I do believe it's a better life here in Canada. I do. I can go to the United States and, and play gigs and sell records and I just buy my temporary work visa for me and my band. But I guess the trade-off is that you do get to live in Canada at the end of the day. That's exactly it is a right. gift. That's exactly yeah. right. It is absolutely a gift to be here. Right. Thank you, Molly, for uh, all the gifts that you've given us. I mean, the, the inspiration, the aspiration. I mean, we looked up to you, you know, when you're performing on stage or at huge concert halls or even in those smoky little jazz rooms and like 
wow, you just, you know, you're, you're a fantasy gal and uh, you make some beautiful music. So uh, thank you. Thanks so much, sweetie. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for the opportunity to talk. And uh, have an incredible uh, holiday season with your gorgeous record. It's a snow globe world. Just, uh, I wish you uh, continued magic in your life. Just like all the magic that you brought us all these years. Right back at you, babe. Thanks for listening. New episodes of podcasts will be coming at you every other Monday. You can watch Style Matters Thursday on TSC or online at the tsc.ca website. Till next time, I'm Jeannie Becker.